Chapter Seventeen of Summer by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Charity lay on the floor on a mattress, as her dead mother's body had lain. The room in which she lay was cold and dark and low-ceilinged, and even poorer and barer than the scene of Mary Hyatt's earthly pilgrimage. On the other side of the fireless stove Liff Hyatt's mother slept on a blanket, with two children, her grandchildren, she said, rolled up against her like sleeping puppies. They had their thin clothes spread over them, having given the only other blanket to their guest. Through the small square of glass in the opposite wall Charity saw a deep funnel of sky, so black, so remote, so palpitating with frosty stars, that her very soul seemed to be sucked into it. Up there somewhere, she supposed, the god whom Mr. Miles had invoked was waiting for Mary Hyatt to appear. What a long flight it was! And what would she have to say when she reached him? Charity's bewildered brain labored with the attempt to picture her mother's past, and to relate it in any way to the designs of a just but merciful God, but it was impossible to imagine any link between them. She felt herself as remote from the poor creature she had seen lowered into her hastily dug grave as if the height of the heavens divided them. She had seen poverty and misfortune in her life, but in a community where poor thrifty Mrs. Hawes and the industrious Alley represented the nearest approach to destitution, there was nothing to suggest the savage misery of the mountain farmers. As she lay there, half stunned by her tragic initiation, Charity vainly tried to think herself into the life about her. But she could not even make out what relationship these people bore to each other, or to her dead mother. They seemed to be herded together in a sort of passive promiscuity in which their common misery was the strongest link. She tried to picture to herself what her life would have been if she had grown up on the mountain, running wild in rags, sleeping on the floor curled up against her mother, like the pale-faced children huddled against old Mrs. Hyatt, and turning into a fierce, bewildered creature, like the girl who had apostrophized her in such strange words. She was frightened by the secret affinity she had felt with this girl, and by the light it threw on her own beginnings. Then she remembered what Mr. Royal had said in telling her story to Lucius Harney. Yes, there was a mother, but she was glad to have the child go. She'd have given her to anybody. Well, after all, was her mother so much to blame? Charity since that day had always thought of her as destitute of all human feeling. Now she seemed merely pitiful. What mother would not want to save her child from such a life? Charity thought of the future of her own child, and tears welled into her aching eyes, and ran down over her face. If she had been less exhausted, less burdened with his weight, she would have sprung up then and there and fled away. The grim hours of the night dragged themselves slowly by, and at last the sky paled and dawned through a cold blue beam into the room. She lay in her corner staring at the dirty floor, the clothesline hung with decaying rags, the old woman huddled against the cold stove, and the light gradually spreading across the wintry world, and bringing with it a new day in which she would have to live, to choose, to act, to make herself a place among these people, or to go back to the life she had left. A mortal lassitude weighed on her. 
There were moments when she felt that all she asked was to go on lying there unnoticed. Then her mind revolted at the thought of becoming one of the miserable herd from which she sprang, and it seemed as though to save her child from such a fate she would find strength to travel any distance and bear any burden life might put on her. Vague thoughts of Nettleton flitted through her mind. She said to herself that she would find some quiet place where she could bear her child, and give it to decent people to keep, and then she would go out like Julia Hawes and earn its living and hers. She knew that girls of that kind sometimes made enough to have their children nicely cared for, and every other consideration disappeared in the vision of her baby, cleaned and combed and rosy, and hidden away somewhere where she could run in and kiss it, and bring it pretty things to wear. Anything, anything was better than to add another life to the nest of misery on the mountain. The old woman and the children were still sleeping when Charity arose from her mattress. Her body was stiff with cold and fatigue, and she moved slowly lest her heavy steps should rouse them. She was faint with hunger, and had nothing left in her satchel. But on the table she saw the half of a stale loaf. No doubt it was to serve as the breakfast of old Mrs. Hyatt and the children. But Charity did not care. She had her own baby to think of. She broke off a piece of the bread and ate it greedily. Then her glance fell on the thin faces of the sleeping children, and filled with compunction she rummaged in her satchel for something with which to pay for what she had taken. She found one of the pretty chemises that Allie had made for her, with a blue ribbon run through its edging. It was one of the dainty things on which she had squandered her savings, and as she looked at it the blood rushed to her forehead. She laid the chemise on the table, and stealing across the floor, lifted the latch, and went out. The morning was icy cold, and a pale sun was just rising above the eastern shoulder of the mountain. The houses scattered on the hillside lay cold and smokeless under the sun-flecked clouds, and not a human being was in sight. Charity paused on the threshold, and tried to discover the road by which she had come the night before. Across the field surrounding Mrs. Hyatt's shanty, she saw the tumble-down house in which she supposed the funeral service had taken place. The trail ran across the ground between the two houses, and disappeared in the pine-wood on the flank of the mountain, and a little way to the right, under a wind-beaten thorn, a mound of fresh earth made a dark spot on the fawn-coloured stubble. Charity walked across the field to the ground. As she approached it, she heard a bird's note in the still air and looking up she saw a brown song-sparrow perched in an upper branch of the thorn above the grave. She stood a minute listening to his small solitary song. Then she rejoined the trail, and began to mount the hill to the pine-wood. Thus far she had been impelled by the blind instinct of flight, but each step seemed to bring her nearer to the realities of which her feverish vigil had given only a shadowy image. Now that she walked again in a daylight world, on the way back to familiar things, her imagination moved more soberly. On one point she was still decided. She could not remain at North Dormer, and the sooner she got away from it, the better. But everything beyond was darkness. As she continued to climb the air grew keener, and when she passed from the shelter of the pines to the open grassy roof of the mountain, the cold wind of the night before sprang out on her. She bent her shoulders and struggled on against it for a while, but presently her breath failed, and she sat down under a ledge of rock overhung by shivering birches. 
From where she sat she saw the trail wandering across the bleached grass in the direction of Hamblin, and the granite wall of the mountain falling away to infinite distances. On that side of the ridge the valley still lay in wintry shadow, but in the plain beyond the sun was touching village roofs and steeples, and gliding the haze of smoke over far-off invisible towns. Charity felt herself a mere speck in the lonely circle of the sky. The events of the last two days seemed to have divided her forever from her short dream of bliss. Even Harney's image had been blurred by that crushing experience. She thought of him as so remote from her that he seemed hardly more than a memory. In her fagged and floating mind only one sensation had the weight of reality. It was the bodily burden of her child. But for it she would have felt as rootless as the whiffs of thistledown the wind blew past her. Her child was like a load that held her down, and yet like a hand that pulled her to her feet. She said to herself that she must get up and struggle on. Her eyes turned back to the trail across the top of the mountain, and in the distance she saw a buggy against the sky. She knew its antique outline, and the gaunt build of the old horse pressing forward with lowered head, and after a moment she recognized the heavy bulk of the man who held the reins. The buggy was following the trail and making straight for the pine-wood through which she had climbed, and she knew at once that the driver was in search of her. Her first impulse was to crouch down under the ledge till he had passed, but the instinct of concealment was overruled by the relief of feeling that someone was near her in the awful emptiness. She stood up and walked toward the buggy. Mr. Royal saw her, and touched the horse with the whip. A minute or two later he was abreast of Charity. Their eyes met, and without speaking he leaned over and helped her up into the buggy. She tried to speak, to stammer out some explanation, but no words came to her, and as he drew the cover over her knees he simply said, "'The minister told me he'd left you up here, so I come up for you.' He turned the horse's head, and they began to jog back toward Hamblin. Charity sat speechless, staring straight ahead of her and Mr. Royal occasionally uttered a word of encouragement to the horse. "'Get along there, Dan. I gave him a rest at Hamblin, but I brought him along pretty quick, and it's a stiff pull up here against the wind.' As he spoke it occurred to her for the first time that to reach the top of the mountain so early he must have left North Dormer at the coldest hour of the night, and have travelled steadily but for the halt at Hamblin, and she felt a softness at her heart which no act of his had ever produced, since he had brought her the Crimson Rambler, because she had given up boarding-school to stay with him. After an interval he began again. "'It was a day just like this, only spitting snow, when I come up here for you the first time.' Then, as if fearing that she might take his remark as a reminder of past benefits, he added quickly, "'I dunno as you think it was such a good job, either.' "'Yes, I do.' she murmured, looking straight ahead of her. "'Well,' he said, "'I tried.' He did not finish the sentence, and she could think of nothing more to say. "'Ho oh, there, Dan, step out,' he muttered, jerking the bridle. "'We ain't home yet.' "'You cold?' he asked abruptly. She shook her head, but he drew the cover up higher, and stooped to tuck it in about the ankles. She continued to look straight ahead. Tears of weariness and weakness were dimming her eyes and beginning to run over, 
but she dared not wipe them away lest he should observe the gesture. They drove in silence, following the long loops of the descent upon Hamblin, and Mr. Royal did not speak again till they reached the outskirts of the village. Then he let the reins droop on the dashboard, and drew out his watch. "'Charity,' he said, "'you look fair done up, and North Dormer's a goodish way off. I've figured out that we'd do better to stop here long enough for you to get a mouthful of breakfast, and then drive down to Creston and take the train." She roused herself from her apathetic musing. "'The train? What train?' Mr. Royal, without answering, let the horse jog on till they reached the door of the first house in the village. "'This is old Mrs. Hobart's place,' he said. "'She'll give us something hot to drink.' Charity, half unconsciously, found herself getting out of the buggy and following him in at the open door. They entered a decent kitchen with a fire crackling in the stove. An old woman with a kindly face was setting out cups and saucers on the table. She looked up and nodded as they came in, and Mr. Royal advanced to the stove, clapping his numb hands together. "'Well, Mrs. Hobart, you got any breakfast for this young lady? You can see she's cold and hungry.' Mrs. Hobart smiled on Charity, and took a tin coffee-pot from the fire. "'My, you do look pretty mean,' she said compassionately. Charity reddened and sat down at the table. A feeling of complete passiveness had once more come over her, and she was conscious only of the pleasant animal sensations of warmth and rest. Mrs. Hobart put bread and milk on the table, and then went out of the house. Charity saw her leading the horse away to the barn across the yard. She did not come back, and Mr. Royal and Charity sat alone at the table with the smoking coffee between them. He poured out a cup for her, and put a piece of bread in the saucer, and she began to eat. As the warmth of the coffee flowed through her veins, her thoughts cleared, and she began to feel like a living being again. But the return to life was so painful that the food choked in her throat, and she sat staring down at the table in silent anguish. After a while Mr. Royal pushed back his chair. "'Now, then,' he said, "'if you have a mind to go along.' She did not move, and he continued, "'We can pick up the noon train for Nettleton, if you say so.' The word sent the blood rushing to her face, and she raised her startled eyes to his. He was standing on the other side of the table, looking at her kindly and gravely, and suddenly she understood what he was going to say. She continued to sit motionless, a leaden weight upon her lips. "'You and me have spoke some hard things to each other in our time, Charity, and there's no good that I can see in any more talking now. But I'll never feel any way but one about you, and if you say so we'll drive down in time to catch that train, and go straight to the minister's house.' and when you come back home, you'll come as Mrs. Royal." His voice had the grave, persuasive accent that had moved his hearers at the home-week festival. She had a sense of depths of mournful tolerance under that easy tone. Her whole body began to tremble with the dread of her own weakness. "'Oh, I can't!' she burst out desperately. "'Can't what?' She herself did not know. She was not sure if she was rejecting what he offered, or already struggling against the temptation of taking what she no longer had a right to. She stood up, shaking and bewildered, and began to speak. "'I know I ain't been fair to you always, but I want to be now. I want you to know—I want—' Her voice failed her, and she stopped. 
Mr. Royal leaned against the wall. He was paler than usual, but his face was composed and kindly, and her agitation did not appear to perturb him. "'What's all this about wanting?' he said as she paused. "'Do you know what you really want? I'll tell you. You want to be took home and took care of, and I guess that's all there is to say.' "'No, it's not all.' "'Ain't it?' He looked at his watch. "'Well, I'll tell you another thing. All I want is to know if you'll marry me. If there was anything else, I'd tell you so. But there ain't. Come to my age, a man knows the things that matter and the things that don't. That's about the only good turn life does us." His tone was so strong and resolute that it was like a supporting arm about her. She felt her resistance melting, her strength slipping away from her as he spoke. "'Don't cry, Charity!' he exclaimed in a shaken voice. She looked up, startled at his emotion, and their eyes met. "'See here,' he said gently. "'Old Dan's come a long distance, and we've got to let him take it easy the rest of the way.' He picked up the cloak that had slipped to her chair and laid it about her shoulders. She followed him out of the house, and then walked across the yard to the shed, where the horse was tied. Mr. Royal unblanketed him and led him out into the road. Charity got into the buggy, and he drew the cover about her, and shook out the reins with a cluck. When they reached the end of the village, he turned the horse's head toward Creston. End of chapter 17